This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Episode 3, Kushtaka, Otterman of the Alaskan Triangle. The Alaskan Triangle, sometimes called Alaska's Bermuda Triangle, is a place in the untouched wilderness of the frontier state where mystery is practically in the air, and people go missing at an extremely high rate. Boundaries of the triangle connect the state's largest city of Anchorage in the south to Juneau in the southeast Panhandle and Barrow, a small town on the state's north coast. The land making up this space is some of North America's most unforgiving wilderness. The area first began attracting public attention in October of 1972, when a small private plane carrying U.S. House Majority Leader Hale Boggs, Alaskan Congressman Nick Bejik, an aide, Russell Brown, and his bush pilot, Don Johns, seemingly vanished into thin air while flying from Anchorage to Juneau. For more than a month, 50 civilian planes and 40 military aircraft plus dozens of boats covered a search area of 32,000 square miles, but no trace of the plane, the men, the wreckage, or debris were ever found. Afterward, more planes went down, hikers went missing, and Alaskan residents and tourists seemed to vanish into thin air. In fact, since 1988, more than 16,000 people have disappeared in the Alaskan Triangle, with a missing persons rate double the national average. In any given year, 500 to 2,000 people go missing in Alaska, never to be seen again. Authorities conduct hundreds of rescue missions, most often returning without finding the missing person or any evidence related to the case at all. These disappearances are blamed on everything from the wilderness itself to aliens to swirling energy vortices. But the Tlingit people, a native tribe in southern Alaska, has an explanation all their own. And it is here that we arrive at our purpose here this evening, the Kashtaka, roughly translated Land Otter Man. The Kashtaka are said to be an evil shape-shifting demon, frequently taking the form of a massive seven to eight foot, thickly hair-covered monstrosity. The tales of the Kashtaka's behavior describe a cruel creature who plays tricks on the Tlingit sailors to cause their deaths and worse, prevent their souls from continuing in the reincarnation cycle at the center of the Tlingit belief structure. Many legends tell of the Kashtaka emitting a high-pitched three-part whistle in a pattern low-high-low. Kashtaka were known to lure women to the rivers by mimicking the cries of babies, 
Then it makes its choice to transform them into fellow Kushtaka, or kill the person and tear them to shreds. Locals believe only a few things can ward off these tricksters. Copper, urine, dogs, and sometimes fire. Modern Tlingit families still tell the tales of the Kushtaka from the old times. And there have been countless encounters detailed by residents and tourists alike over the last 200 years. This is one such tale. In the year 1900, Harry Culp and his three companions, John, Charlie, and Fred, shared a small cabin in Wrangell, Alaska. While they all held various day labor positions to keep themselves fed, what had brought them to the heart of the Alaskan wilderness, and what they still held hope for, was prospecting. They were there for gold, and so far there had been none. Late one April night, Charlie burst into the shack just before dinner time. Fellas, listen up, he shouted. I spotted a big old piece of gold quartz in the camp of an old Indian from the sawmill. I've been on him to tell me where he found it. I didn't tell you about it before because I wanted the whole story first. Well, he finally came out with it. He told me to go up to Thomas Bay and camp on the Patterson River. Travel upriver for eight miles and turn to the high mountains. About a mile and a half into the mountains, I'll find a half-moon-shaped lake. Fellas, what he said was, there's plenty of stone like I found on a slide there. The three listened intently, excited by the first sign of gold in over a year, but exchanged a weary look at the mention of Thomas Bay. Natives in the area called it the Bay of Death. Over a hundred years earlier, a landslide had claimed the lives of nearly 500 of its residents. Ever since, the area had become synonymous with disaster. All that being said, there wasn't a self-respecting prospector alive that would allow some silly old bedtime story to turn him away from a possible payday. The four of them sat down and laid out a plan. It was decided that Charlie, having hunted the lead down himself, would go alone to check the prospect over. John, Fred, and Harry would take work in town in order to pay off a loan they'd taken for food and to secure the next. At the beginning of May, they packed three months' worth of supplies in the canoe and sent Charlie northwest up the river to Thomas Bay. They agreed that if he found any surefire signs of gold, he would return immediately. If, after three months, there was no sign of him, they'd send out a search party. John and Fred took jobs cutting timber, and Harry went back to work the sawmill. Things were going along according to plan until the first weekend of June. While sitting down for supper in the afternoon, the three were surprised when an exhausted and obviously distraught Charlie burst through the door with no coat and no hat. He didn't offer so much as a hello. He simply stated, Get me something to eat. I'm all in, and I need to rest. His companions made him a plate of food, and after he choked it down, he went directly to bed without another word concerning the trip. The three men spent the evening passing the chunk of quartz around, admiring its beauty and the beauty of what it really meant. It was deeply flecked with gold, the kind of quartz that meant gold wasn't far off, for sure. Near sunset, it dawned on the men that Charlie had come in with nothing more than the quartz. They decided to head down to the river and retrieve Charlie's gear from the canoe. 
They were confused to find that the canoe sat empty aside from one oar. The men could barely sleep that night, aside from Charlie whose deep slumber filled the cabin with a kind of snoring that none of them had ever heard before. It took nearly 30 minutes to wake him for breakfast in the morning, and the three started in with questions immediately. Charlie shrugged off the inquiries all through breakfast, borrowed a coat and hat, and headed into town. Fully expecting a serious windfall in their near futures, the three men decided to call off work that day. They decided they'd wait patiently for Charlie to come back and make his report. They spent the morning once again passing the courts around and talking about how their lives would change once they hit it big. They anxiously awaited his arrival through the morning and into the early afternoon. When he finally arrived, he looked even more exhausted than he had the night before. He said, fellas, the SS Drigo will be here on our way south early tomorrow morning. Can you give me enough money for my ticket to Seattle? I'm through with Alaska, and I never want to see it again. I'll tell you about my trip to Thomas Bay, and where I found the quartz, but my advice to you is to forget about it. It'll never do you any good and will only cause you mental and physical pain. If we weren't partners, I would never open my lips about this trip or what I found, but if you promise never to mention my name in connection with it, or mention the name Thomas Bay to me again, I'll give it to you straight from my experience up there. Now judge for yourselves as to my saneness, because this is the most astounding thing you ever heard, and as far as I'm concerned, it's beyond me to make sense of it. Don't ask any questions to prolong my story any longer than it takes to tell it. I want to leave Alaska and forget it if I can. I'll try to make the one telling plain enough. So Charlie took a seat at the table across from his partners, and this was his story. The first night after leaving Wrangell found me an ideal cove. Next night I reached Muddy River in time to make camp again. The third night I hit Ruth Island in Thomas Bay. I spent the next day looking up Patterson River for a suitable place to set up camp, which I found about a quarter mile up from the tidewater on the right hand side. I broke camp on Ruth Island the next day and moved up to the place I picked out the day before, put up my tent packed up my gear and left the canoe on the riverbank. I spent the next day cooking beans, cutting wood, and making things comfortable for a long stay. It looked like rain and I wanted to get things fixed up to keep dry. It started raining that night and just kept up for days. I lost track of time. Each day was just like the one before. I had nothing to read, I was all alone and couldn't do anything without getting soaked. The roar of the river and the wind through the timber just it just about drove me mad. So I spent most of my time sleeping. Finally, the weather broke and I got out. I spent a few days trying to find the old Indian's half-moon lake, but I couldn't spot it. I did find about two miles from camp up the river, and about a mile from it, a lake shaped like the letter S. On the creek coming out from the lower end, I panned some pretty good colors. But as I figured, not enough to get excited about. Yeah, an indication of gold in the country. Talk about a dead country. That sure is. There didn't seem to be any life in there at all. You might spend all day in the timber without seeing a squirrel. I was getting sort of tired of beans, rice, and bacon, so I made up my mind that I would go over to a ridge about eight miles east of the S Lake and get a few grouse. 
I've been hearing their calls up there when I was at the head of the lake. I left the next morning, which was a fine sunny day. I took only the rifle with me, and when I came to the ridge, sure enough, there were a few grouse calling. I shot two. On my way to pick them up, I bagged another. It fell down the ridge about a hundred yards. While on my way down to pick it up, I found that piece of quartz. Now up to that time, I wasn't paying any attention to what the country I was in looked like. It was so heavily timbered and brushy that nothing specific ever really caught my eye. The formation didn't show up, and I had no tools with me to uncover it. The top of an old snag had broken off and fallen, scraping the top moss and loose dirt for a space of about 8 feet wide and maybe 20 feet long, uncovering this quartz ledge, which is where I found this piece. This ledge was worked smooth by a glacier at one time. I couldn't find anything to break a piece off with, so I used the butt of my gun to get that piece. In doing so, I broke the stock of my gun and definitely ruined it for further use. This didn't worry me any. I knew there wasn't any game in the country larger than a grouse and a damn few of them. My first thought was of the richness of the courts and of you fellas and getting back to town to round you all up so we could get busy on it. After looking over and enjoying the feeling of knowing I had made a rich find, I covered the ledge up again with moss and limbs. Afterward, I thought I'd climb the ridge directly over the ledge and get my landmarks, so I could come back to it again or tell you where it was if anything should happen to me. This I did, climbing straight up over the ledge on the ridge till I reached the top, about 600 feet above where I found the ledge. I looked down below me and picked out a big tree with a bushy top taller than the rest and about 50 feet to the right of the ledge. Looking out over the top of this tree from where I stood, I could see out on Frederick Sound, Cape of the Straight Light, point of Vanderput Spit, and turning a little to the left, I could see Sequoia Island from the mouth of Wrangell Narrows. Satisfied with that, I turned half round to get a backside on some mountain peaks, and lying below me on the other side of the ridge from the ledge was the Half Moon Lake the Indian had told me about. It was right there, fellas. Then, I got the scare of my life. I hope to God I never see or go through the likes of it again. Swarming up the ridge toward me from the lake were the most hideous creatures. I couldn't call them anything but devils. They were neither men nor monkeys, yet they looked like both. Or maybe otters. They were entirely sexless. Their bodies were covered with long, coarse hair, except where scabs and running sores had replaced it. Each one seemed to be reaching out for me and striving to be the first to get me. The air was full of their cries and the stench from their sores and bodies made me faint. I forgot my broken gun and tried to use it on the first ones. I remembered it was broken real quick and threw it at them and turned and ran. God, how I ran. I could feel their hot breath on my back, their long claw-like fingers scraping me. The smell of their steaming, stinking bodies was making me sick. All the noises they made, yelling, screaming, and breathing, drove me mad. Reason left me entirely. How I reached the canoe or how I hung on to that piece of quartz is a mystery to me. When I came to, it was night, and I was laying in the bottom of my canoe, drifting between Thomas Bay and Sequoia Island. 
cold, hungry, and crazy for a drink of water. Since all I had was the water around me, I started for Wrangell and here I am. Now you no doubt think I'm either crazy or lying. All I can say is, there's the quartz. Never let me hear the name Thomas Bay again and for God's sake, help me get away tomorrow on that boat. Now we put Charlie on that boat and we never heard from him again. For years we talked about how insanity got a hold of him. But gold or no gold, none of us ever took the trip up to that half-moon lake. Welcome, campers, to Campfire Tales of the Strange and Unsettling. We're your hosts. I'm Ryan. And I'm Jordan. And now, the debrief. All right. Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, I'm just trying to trying to collect my thoughts here. Um, so... He found he he at least found the moon shaped lake, but uh, never actually got to go to it. You said that he ended up finding the quartz outside of the there was like an S shaped lake or S shaped river or something like that, um, and it found it on just like a patch on the side. So okay, yeah, yeah. He never actually made it to the lake. As soon as he spotted it, the uh, Kushtaka started uh you know he noticed them rushing toward him and so there were there were multiple like multiples of them there wasn't just one single okay yeah Yeah. see that's the main thing that really sets the kushtaka apart because there are you will find occasionally like um kushtaka referred to as like the native people the tlingit a lot of people We'll talk about them like this is just the Tlingit version of Bigfoot. Okay. Right? That's what it kind of sounded like. It sounded like at least remotely similar to Bigfoot at first. (laughs) Right. Because there's like an offhanded mention of like not quite man, not quite monkey. Right. Right. Like, but also both. But if you like, I think at surface level, people think like, oh, a big hairy humanoid. I guess it's a Bigfoot, but if you, like, dive into the actual, like, the lore behind the Kushtaka, they're, they're actually closer to skinwalkers well, than Bigfoot. You had mentioned Devilmen, right? Uh-huh. And so, did they, I guess, did they resemble that in talking about skinwalkers? So, were they, uh... I guess, do you, can you describe kind of more in depth like what they looked like, or do you know for sure? Yeah, so basically, they're, according to the lore they take, I mean, they're shape changers. So okay. they occasionally take the shape of a person, right? So they'll, like, take the shape of a companion or a friend of someone's in order to lure them, you know? All right. But the, like, the main form is this like seven to eight foot tall covered in like sleek dark brown or black fur with the hands of a man with taloned fingers human like feet a tail and um large glowing eyes and needle like teeth huh okay yeah so (laughs) pretty pretty fucking gnarly yeah yeah not something you want coming at you in the middle of a forest. 
Yeah. Another cool, like, bit about the description is, like, one way that you can tell that, say, a person is actually Kashtaka, you know, when they're in, like, human form, is apparently the teeth never change. Okay. So, like, you might see your friend Dave over there, and he's like, hey, come down to the shore with me. But then he, like, gives you a smile, and his teeth are needles. <laughs> he's Kashaka. <laughs> That'd be a little off-putting, uh, at least yeah. a little bit, I think. Yeah, I don't... Yeah, uh, just a bit. I don't think I would take anyone's um, suggestion or go near anyone that, uh, you know, has teeth that it look like they could literally rip through me. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I think it's really cool, especially that they can shape, basically shapeshift. Um, yeah. You know, because that's that's a bit different than you know than anything that we're we're used to as well. Um, yeah. And you said they were referred to the Kushtaka was, you said, stood roughly for land otterman. So otter, they were referred to as the ottermen of Alaska or the Alaskan Triangle. Yep. And so yeah, what? So. Yeah. Go ahead. No, they, um, that's what they, they liken it to, right? So, like, this giant seven to eight foot tall thing, the Tlingit people consider that basically an amalgam of a man and an otter. Okay. Which seems, it seems odd to us because we think of otters as, like, the cute little, you know, like, holding hands while they sleep in the water type otters, right? right? But, like... The Tlingit people consider otters pests. Like okay. they they like destroy things. They like they're a sign of the weather changing in negative ways. Like they they don't the people don't. So you can see how like that could get woven into the lore of something dangerous, right? right. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, anytime otters are going to be even brought about, then it's going to always lead to something negative, right? Right, for sure. Okay, cool. And so I was just kind of looking, because um, you had also mentioned, so this particular lake, was it right on the, the Alaskan Triangle, or was it, I mean, I, I assume it was basically like dead center? Um, yeah, Ringel is like location. I believe Ringel is like north up the coast from Juno, so okay. it's like it's right there in the triangle. Okay, awesome. Which makes a lot of sense. And so now I know that you had also mentioned that they have like a, a specific whistle, um, kind of the low, high, low uh, whistle. So. Um, was it Charlie in this case is our, our main character that went to went to the lake? Yep. Did he happen to hear any of that or remember kind of recalling any of it? Because I don't believe you had mentioned anything as he was telling the story as well. No, there wasn't anything about the whistle in that in that specific story. Um, that story is like, yeah, this is as good a time as any to acknowledge a source. So this that story comes from. It's, it actually has a pretty cool story behind the story itself. So, okay. the the fellow who wrote it, Harry Culp, um, 
he lived in Alaska from like his early 20s well into into his old age right for the rest of his life All right, he lived yeah. there his whole life and he he was a, he originally was a prospector but he when he failed at that he became a writer okay, okay. so like this story was a manuscript that his daughter Virginia Culp found after he died like found it that he had just tucked away and never did anything with never published right right and it's like it's titled the strangest story ever told okay and like it's yeah so his daughter had it published after he after he had died Gotcha. So, and that was the story that he was telling to his his friends, right? Or the right. the guys that he was working with that that he had went out and looked for, uh, was looking for. No, he actually he actually was not the main character who actually went out. He was one of the three that were told by oh, Charlie. He was one of the friends. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So, whatever happened to I guess to Charlie then? Because I know that they had said that. You know, he had never came back and what they had never heard from him again after that. Uh, yeah, they paid for him to take a ship south and they never heard from him again. Were you able to track anything down about him, kind of what he's done since, or if he's kind of recalled any of that at all? No. Okay. People have contacted him, or they contacted him about it when they first published, when she first published the book, which I believe was in the late 80s. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was just like, I don't know what you're talking about. No idea. Like, no comment. Gotcha. Which so, makes sense. Yeah. Because his whole thing was, I don't ever want to hear about this again. You know? I mean, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure it'd be terrifying, and you probably never want to relive that at all either. So, um, yeah. Now, and you said that it, I believe if, if my date was right that all this kind of started happening around 1972? No, uh, when... 1900. Okay. The story itself, the, the story I was reading you, the mm-hmm. strangest story ever told, the one based on that, was that came in 1900. Okay. That happened at, in 1900. When people started first paying attention to the Alaskan Triangle was in 72. Okay, that that's where that was where I had my... Uh, kind of note down here because yeah there was the you said that a a plane had basically flew over it and then just kind of vanished yeah. um and then over the years a lot of people kind of vanished from the area and i believe if the number was right you said about 500 to a thousand a year or was it two thousand a year it's it's crazy the numbers up there are insane okay like 500 to 2,000 people go missing in any given year in okay, Alaska. Okay, so it was 2,000. Yeah. So it's like even... unrecovered missing people. Right. Yeah, which is even yeah. more than I had written down here, which is... Yeah, I mean, that's especially just in that area. Um, yeah. You know, and obviously we haven't ever gotten into, like, the Bermuda Triangle or anything like that. I know that there's a lot of just kind of strange figures and things like that, too, but just for a particular area especially in Alaska you know, no doubt um, yeah I mean there's a lot of places you could probably literally disappear to in Alaska oh, yeah. that would be you know, you'd never be able to be found again 
Um, you know, Absolutely. So that's possible. Um, you know, or a lot of, say, like, planes going down on a particular uh, icy or mountainous area, and then, you know, you're kind of looking at all that, too. So, um, yep. but yeah, I mean, 502000 per year just in this particular, and that's not other figures for anywhere else in Alaska, right? Just in that main no. kind of area? The Triangle. Okay. Yep. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. nuts. That's a lot of people. That doesn't include anyone who goes missing, like, at sea, off the coast. Right. None of that is included. So, yeah, it's double the national average. Yeah, that's a lot. And so, um, and kind of getting back on kind of the overall distinct, or the overall kind of description of uh, of the Kishtaka, um, you said that a way to kind of ward them off was through use of copper, urine, dogs, and sometimes fire. Can you kind of yeah. elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, so according to the the Tlingit lore, that's everyone has everyone has a dog. Ever like every Tlingit family has a dog. Just kind of and part of like, their culture, right? Yes. So like the dogs are known to ward them off, to ward the Kashaka off. Honestly, I couldn't find any instances of someone using urine to ward off a Kashtaka. Yeah. I don't know how that would work exactly, but... That would kind of seem just like a random... random. So take a piss on them and they'll run away or something. But, you <laughs> right. Know. Yeah. Unlike anything else. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so also copper. Um, you being an area so rich and different, you know, well, I mean, obviously they were looking for gold, uh, but you right. know, gold quartz, things like that. So, um, how does how like where does copper kind of tie in as a repellent? Yeah, so the Tlingit people would create copper weapons. Okay, and, and that was... like their their arrowheads would be made of copper. Their they would make blades out of copper. And so is that like? I think that was their. I think that was their primary like material for weapons. Okay. So that's probably how that got tied in. All right. I was going to say, I didn't know if maybe there was a thing where, like, you know, that was the only thing that actually pierced to their skin or was able to do, like, any type of damage to them or anything like that. No, I didn't really look into, like, ways to fight the Kushtaka. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, <laughs> right. Directly. It just. It might be good to but know. Those, but those things make sense. You know, if like if a culture has a boogeyman, essentially, of course, then they're going to have like ways to ward them off, right? So like mm-hmm. very early on, like make sure your fire doesn't die. You got to keep the kushtaka away, right? So you won't freeze to death. <laughs> yeah, you know, and you know we make all of our weapons out of copper. So that's going to of course be the only thing, thing that keeps them away, right? Like. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, makes a lot of sense. You know, that's uh, especially in in that culture, you know, however they did things or whatever they used. I'm sure copper was probably a big part of it. And so, like you said, just kind of thrown in there as a, this is one thing to ward them off or get rid of them um, just because that's what they used. They didn't know anything else. Exactly. Exactly. 
the urine though I would have to say is the one that was just most stood out the most. Um, it's odd. <laughs> just I don't just because it's not something you normally hear as a uh, as a weapon or at least something to you know fight something off or hold something hold. Well, I yeah, I guess yeah I guess that depends. Yeah. That's a different story, but. Uh, I mean, yeah. maybe maybe that's how they taught like young Tlingit boys to like go off to the perimeter of camp to take a piss. Maybe they use that you know? as a, a means of potty training, yeah. if you will, right? <laughs> Rapella. Yeah, <laughs> right. There's a monster lives out here. You got to piss on it. That's the only way you can get rid of it. Exactly. <laughs> Makes sense. <laughs> like uh, you're imitating the only Tlingit person with a southern accent. <laughs> <laughs> you don't know they might have they might all have them Maybe. or they all just have different accents who knows I'd like mine to be a okay, little so, a little southern so this is like the most popular the most like widely read story about the Kashaka okay but I feel like it doesn't doesn't describe them very well like according to their lore you know right because it's it's a fairly brief encounter in the story mm-hmm. so like well, that's that's why i was also kind of curious as far as you know you would describe them as devil men but also kind of reminiscent of a of a bigfoot or something of the sort um, so I was right. just kind of curious. I mean, if, yeah, if there's if you have more that can kind of dive into that. Yeah. So, in an article posted in 2018, it was posted on CryptoZoo News. Um, Lauren Coleman documented correspondence that she received from an Alaskan private investigator. It details events that took place after an earthquake that year in 2018 so this is very recent right a few years ago that's yeah that's still very recent yeah so let me just read you this story this comes directly from cryptozoonews.com okay as a preface the investigator who i'll refer to as da states even among modern tlingit the topic of the kushtaka is met with respect and sometimes fear they are known to work magic in legend the kushtaka is an accepted part of their world it is not a topic openly discussed among themselves let alone with outsiders okay so this is his story as cell phones were being alerted the speaker system in the southeastern town of sitka alaska had yet to be activated Families were already packing cars and heading to higher ground. Others were on foot heading to higher ground. Bears, which would normally be hibernating, were heading to higher ground as well, along with deer. Eric was out at Stargavin Park, a popular place for people locally, which is several miles away from downtown Sitka. The alert came over his cell phone. Eric and his girlfriend started back toward town in their car. Having just passed the Alaska Marine Highway Ferry System Terminal, They were going around a bend in the road. Eric's car died on the spot. They sat for a few moments trying to restart the car. Eric popped the hood to see what was going on with his car. He got out. 
a deer was running across the road. A moment later, a humanoid figure standing approximately eight feet tall crossed the road directly in front of them. The creature was just a few feet away from their car. I asked Eric what he thought it could possibly be. Was it a bear? Was it a human? What were his thoughts? That was no bear. I know it definitely wasn't a human. That was a kushtaka, he said. His composure changed instantly after mentioning the kushtaka. He paused briefly in front of our car. He looked right at us. I was more fascinated than I was scared at that moment. You could see his hair-covered body. His arms seemed a little disproportionate compared to a human. They seemed longer. It just looks different from our arms. His biceps, triceps were definitely bigger than any human I've ever seen. Eric demonstrated how big the arms looked to him. I stood there by my car door. He paused and looked at me straight in the eyes. He looked like he was about ready to come toward me, but then he took off, continuing across the road and into the woods. My god, that smell about him was awful. I've never smelled anything like that. Eric and his girlfriend sat in the car, not knowing what to do next. Time was of the essence to get to higher ground. Eric did not realize until later that his car started quite readily after the Kashtaka sighting. Tsunami alert came and went, mostly without incident. I asked Eric to take me to the spot where the sighting had occurred. The subject was changed on the spot. Eric's girlfriend, Diane, confirmed what had happened. Diane added a piece of information which Eric had been unaware of. I urged Eric to get back in the car. I could hear branches being pushed through. I then heard what sounded like somebody hitting the side of a tree with a baseball bat or something. Now with both of them present, I asked if they would show me where this had happened. A few moments of silence occurred. We sat silent as we sipped our tea. They took glances at each other and back at me. Reluctantly, they agreed to take me to the spot. Eric brought out the inner bark of Devil's Club to chew on. It wasn't just a sighting, but an experience, and one which required us to prepare to go where it happened. We went to the spot where the encounter had happened. Sadly, the melting snow wiped out footprints, and you could see other animal footprints which were just freshly made. Eric pointed to where the Kushtaka went. You could see the branches, some of which were broken. Eric spoke aloud in Tlingit. We respect each other. Yes, we respect each other. I faced the area where it went up the hill and spoke aloud in Tlingit. Yes, that is the way it is. We respect each other. So it is not forgotten. We respect each other. Eric demonstrated the stride of the creature. He had to hop to get where he estimated each foot landed as it crossed the road. We got back in the car and drove back to town. One uh, one thing I'm curious of. You said so basically they they knew of the Kashtaka and they ac- accepted them. So was it just like a thing that it was like popular in you know in their culture in their that area's lore and just like they lived peacefully with them or was it still something that um you know that you didn't want to come a- like basically come across. I think it was it's considered something that they have like a lot of reverence for. Like whether that's because of how dangerous they are, right, or or because of some other type of understanding, I'm not sure, but it's like it's not something to be trifled with. That's how they treat it. Okay, like it's something that they take very seriously. Right. So you know, and and kind of thinking of different cultures and things that they, 
either worship or believe in or you know these random uh, these random types of things or creatures or whatever you want to you want to call it um so it's basically like that in that particular you know in that particular story or that particular area um yeah so with so with this particular story that you were that you were just telling where they came across them um you said that the girlfriend had claimed to hear what sounded basically like a baseball bat hitting the tree. Was that before, uh, before I guess the Kushtaka even came, uh, came passing across the road after the deer? I think it was while he was no, it was while he was outside the car, like basically staring it down, like okay. it's standing in the road. And I don't know if she heard more coming. Or gotcha. You know, yeah. But she said she heard branches being pushed through and heard mm-hmm. like the baseball bat sound and all that. Yeah, but they didn't. They didn't do anything. It just basically came, made eye contact, and then went about its business. And so, yep. Um, you know, which I'm assuming, especially this uh, this other guy, which I didn't I didn't catch his name, but the one that wanted to see where where everything had happened. So the one, yep, the investigator, right, writing, you know, kind of writing it up. Um, you know, obviously, if it was him that came across it or something like that, it might be a little bit of a different story. You know, not knowing right. what to fully expect. So, did he happen to get to see it at all? Um, because I know, you know, it it didn't really kind of touch on it specifically in that story. Um, so I didn't know if maybe that was something that was kind of further furthered into it all. Well, he never actually got to see it, but okay. there is a second. There is a second incident from this same. So basically, what was happening during this time is there was an earthquake in okay. Alaska, right? Measured like it was like an eight point something magnitude earthquake in right. Alaska, and there was a tsunami warning, right? So Just a bunch of shit going down all at once, basically. Yes. So there's a tsunami warning because of the earthquake. And animals, when that happens, they they sense it, you know, and they start running away from the coast. Like deer, right. bears, everything just starts running as uphill as they can get. And um, you can assume that the Kushtaka would do the same. Right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. So there were a couple sightings during during this. Um, and that was all back from you said 2018, right? Yep, 2018. Okay. Yeah. And was the so other one the one... same? I was gonna say, was it the same reporter, or was it a different yep. t- a different case? It was the same investigator got awesome. to speak with another group of people who had a sighting. So the second incident, I'll yeah, I'll just read you the second incident now. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm ready. Okay. The John family welcomed me into their home. I told them that I wanted to learn more about their experience with the Kushtaka during the tsunami alert. As I approached the house, I noted the pieces of Devil's Club were placed above each door and window of the house. The moment I had mentioned that I was interested in learning about the incident with the Kushtaka, their mother left the room. She would not rejoin us for the rest of the interview. It's worth noting here that one can talk about Kushtaka freely to see what terms the witnesses use. 
so as to avoid such an occurrence as had happened during this part of the investigation. The sirens were going full blast announcing the possibility of a tsunami heading towards Sitka. The Johns family home was high enough so that they decided to stay during the tsunami alert. As they sat listening to the announcement and trying to update everybody on Facebook about being safe, the power went out. Michael noticed that there were lights on the street lamps not far away, so he was going to go outside and see what was going on. Michael told his wife to get some candles. Their children were still asleep. They envied how they could sleep somehow through all of this. Michael opened the front door. What he saw horrified him. There he was. He was so huge. He started coming toward the house. I fell backwards on my butt. I yelled at him to get away. I didn't know what else to do. He was right by the shed. I don't think he could come in the door without ducking down. Michael picked up a stick and showed me how tall he was. That was perhaps eight feet tall, maybe eight and a half feet tall. Michael said that at the time of the sighting, his mother came and looked out the door. He said that she was saying something loudly in Tlingit. I had asked him what she was saying. He didn't know as he does not speak Tlingit. She was not going to return to fill in this gap due to my misstep earlier. His mother closed the door and sat back down. She didn't say another word about it. She sat back to playing solitaire. The power came back on. Michael cautiously approached the door. Just leave it, his mother said to him. Whatever it was was no longer there. He heard off in the distance what sounded like some rocks being thrown their direction. I told you to leave it alone. Close the door and sit down, his mother said. The tsunami alert came and went mostly without incident. Michael and his wife said their goodbyes to me. As I left, I stopped to look again at the shed and contemplated how tall and wide the creature was as Michael demonstrated earlier with a stick. The melting snow and resulting puddles did away with a lot of potential footprints. So that's the second. Okay, which it's awesome. I mean, especially having multiple multiple accounts of it too. Now, one uh, one thing I was kind of curious about. You mentioned above the doors and windows they had what was it called? Devil's Club. Yes, Devil's Club. Which it's. It's a special, um, it's like a, a special piece of wood, basically. Okay. Like, it's a type of tree that, oddly enough, just like copper, just like fire, all those other things, it fits right into, like, very old Tlingit culture, was the areas that they settled were tons of these trees with Devil's Club. And it was another thing that kind of wards off. Yes. The, the Kushtaka. Correct. Um, so now in this, uh, so you said the the lady or the mother um, told him, you know, just to leave it alone and you know basically not not bother with it. Um, I guess in this case, do you think she was more? more aware of the Kashtaka or, you know, I mean, because it sounds like he was too, but maybe not quite as as versed, I guess. Yeah, I think it's it's pretty calm. Anyone anyone like raising someone in modern society that 
comes from one of these like cultures that still like have these deep rich you know cultural beliefs uh-huh. I think experience a lot of the same thing I mean not to speak for them but I think it's a fairly common trope that like the young kids are like oh that old stuff you know they right. don't take it seriously um, right same with you know a lot of the Native American culture here in America right you have like younger generations don't don't put as much stock in a lot of the older traditions right and i mean things so, are kind of considered like urban legends at that point right 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 i think this guy had definitely heard of the kashtaka right but he probably just wrote it off like like you said like an urban legend or mm-hmm. not something to be taken very seriously until he saw one standing in his damn backyard He's like, holy shit, yeah, alright, this is a real thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean... And when when the interviewer, when the uh, investigator was talking with the family, I don't know if he caught that, but, like, he misspoke because he came right out in the beginning and said, so, what about that Kashtaka? And right. the mother, t- I mean, they, they keep it very close to the chest, right? They, like... They don't like discussing it in mixed company or in open company. Yeah. And she just leaves the room and she won't talk to him because he was so flagrant about discussing it. I mean, it could it could also be that, like, they also don't talk badly of these things as well. Maybe it's like right. a superstitious sort of thing where it's like that, uh, you know, where they feel like the, it's not going to bother them or anything like that if they don't speak negatively, if they don't... Um, you know, do I guess go out of their way to try and attract it, or uh, you right. know, things like that, right? It's like the guy in the first incident. You know how he was in Tlingit saying like, "We respect you, you respect us," all that, like basically shouting it out to the forest. I think they basically. What that tells me is that the Tlingit people have developed, like, a sort of live-and-let-live system with the Kishtaka. With them, right? right. Like, like you stay over there, and we'll stay over here, and we'll respect you and your boundaries, and you respect ours. Right? Yeah. And then you do anything to upset that, you know, to right. basically, like, betray those boundaries or something like that, then it's, you know, grounds for, I guess, whatever's necessary, right? shamans that's another really cool part of the lore is like you know i mentioned at the at the top of the show i mentioned the idea of um not only could the kashtaka kill you they can turn you into a kashtaka so the only in the lore the only way for someone to be saved from that is through like shamanic ritual okay yeah so can they be reversed yes there's like a completely reverse dive we could do on that but it's like that's like an hour show in itself like (laughs) okay there's the the shamanic stuff with the tlingit people is so cool and i like i'd love to get into that some other time but like it's it's very cool it's super detailed I mean, it's a huge part of their culture if there if there's even a possibility that they could they could reverse that type of thing anyways i think it would be really you know it'd be really cool to kind of expand on sometime but so 
you said that they could so basically they can turn they can turn the kushtaka can turn you know humans into kushtaka and shamans can reverse it do you think ultimately that it's the shamans that are basically the kushtaka interesting you know that's that's a big question right i mean in some cultures shamans can also shift they can do other you know other things kind of you know similar to that as well so right i don't know i think in the in the tlingit culture the shamans were basically like leaders right so like they're very involved in their with their people like on a daily basis so like i don't know if they could like double life it <laughs> you know what i mean yeah but you know, I don't know I was, but I was maybe thinking, the shamans of, yeah but maybe the shamans are you know obviously this is all speculation we of don't course. know anything but a cool idea would be like maybe the shamans are kushtaka that don't live with the kushtaka right that's, so they're like yeah that could be possible too yeah and that's why they can also reverse why they can right. you know dive dive so much into it why they could be quote unquote leaders yeah, um, why they have you know. the these like shamanic magic powers in the first place right? exactly yeah so that that's, would be yeah. that'd be kind of like an angle I'd, I'd like to I think I, I would like to kind of approach a little bit um, or cool. you know consider rather um, you know and, and kind you of piggybacking Go ahead. You may have just you may have just accidentally pitched a movie about Kushtaka. You're welcome. Uh, we'll take <laughs> some you. of the royalties off of that. Yeah, um, yeah. But you know, piggybacking off of that, so let's let's think for a minute. With the Kushtaka being these, they could they could be outcast, uh, or the shamans being outcast Kushtaka. They could be Kushtaka that's just uh, you know were. Um, you know, went against every everything and kind of developed into this. Um, you know, they could have they could have set the whole uh, name the the tribe again. I had it. I was trying to find it down here in my notes. But what was the tribe? The K- Tlingit. Tlingit. The there Tlingit tribe. Tlingit. Yeah. There we go. So you know, and could have potentially started this Tlingit tribe that you know slowly evolved into what it is now and. Um, you know, and that could be, you know, that could be possibly kind of what we're what we're dealing with. That could be why that there why there's this um, almost like treaty or not, uh, you know, but agreement rather between the two parties and things like that too. So, yeah. which, that's interesting. <laughs> I like the idea of it. Yeah, but I'm maybe like um, maybe they're. Um, or they could also be like infiltrators, right? Like, not necessarily removed or kicked out of the Kashtaka society, but placed okay. there intentionally. You know what I mean? To like guide the Tlingit people. So they were they were placed within the Kashtaka. No, within the Tlingit people. Within the Tlingit people from. By right. the Kushtaka, basically. Correct. 
kind yeah, of like a you know not like a black ops but like a weird like a spy? <laughs> right just you know kind of weird uh weird spies that especially because they can shift right uh um, right you know so yeah they could be your everyday people or you know as mentioned they could just be um you know just the the casted out kishtaka um but yeah i mean that that's a possibility too they could be there and but i feel like i I guess if they were spies they would still be trying to keep it covered trying to keep that that fact hidden right so they're of course gonna you know help out and be mentors you know to the tolinga people and you know whatever else however else they can incorporate with them um yeah so like which you know all that aside the um a lot of people like think you know i was explaining this earlier how kashtaka sometimes is used interchangeable with bigfoot or sasquatch right i honestly think they're closer to skinwalkers because the a lot of the sightings are of them in this like preferred form this giant hairy you know humanoid yeah but according to the lore they are way closer to skinwalkers like they can take the form of otters like regular everyday otters Mm -hmm. or people or this monstrous amalgam of the two or the possible deer that was in front of uh what was his name eric's car Um, yeah could have also been another right exactly yeah that's where we get crazy right yeah it's like Anytime you have someone hunting like skinwalkers, looking for skinwalkers, you're like, it could be anything. Well, yeah, exactly. And who knows? Maybe the guy that was, or the guy, uh, the people that the guy was interviewing, uh, maybe they were Kostaka. Maybe the interviewer was Kostaka. Exactly. He's just trying to get word on his own people, seeing how people feel about it, you know? Maybe you and I are Kashaka. Maybe we are. You never know. It's true. I've, I don't you think I've what? ever shifted into anything else, but maybe I'm a Kashaka stuck in you know this, this form forever. Because I just never developed my skills. I don't know. You gotta watch out for the teeth. <laughs> the the needle teeth. I haven't grown them yet. So maybe that's yeah. maybe that's at least a good sign that I'm not a Kashtaka. It's good to know. I like to be sure. <laughs> From now on, when I meet new people, I'm gonna just gonna. You gotta look for their teeth. Their teeth. Yes. Exactly. You mind uh, burying your teeth for me for a moment? Uh, come <laughs> you again? Burying your teeth. <laughs> I mean, how else would you ask? Hey, bitch, show me them. Show me them teethers. Uh, <laughs> I like burying burying your teeth, you know, because yeah. and then you, when you do it, they're gonna they're go, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and that's what you expect out of out of a kashtaka. At least I would. <laughs> so I was gonna mention the um, there was actually a third family who had a sighting. Oh really? Right? Okay. That night, but the mother from the second contacted them before he was able to do the interview and convince them to cancel the interview. 
the one that was telling this son to not worry about it and yes. you know, basically leave it be. Okay, so she yeah, reached the one out to who, them. Yeah, the one who stormed out of the interview because he was being nonchalant about it. Okay. She went and called the other family and was like, this guy doesn't respect the Kashtaka. He doesn't have respect for our culture, so don't let him in your home. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's right there serious. proves that they're Kishtakas. <laughs> <laughs> that might be it. I don't Listen. Or at least that they have us. like or at least that they have some kind of like serious bond or yes. right. Something that you know, something that they're drawn to them or some you know, again, which could be could be something off of their, you know, off of their culture that they've developed from, or yeah. you know, a specific something that they treat almost like a god, like uh, yeah. you know, some you know something along those lines. It very well could be anything, which obviously yeah. you know we're not a part of that culture. We'll probably never know, you know, exactly. Um, For sure. But I think especially knowing knowing that and her telling them to not do the interview. I think is a little, you know, a little suspect to me. Seems a little fishy. <laughs> yeah, it might be. So, but at the same time, so the conclusion we've reached, the conclu- <laughs> the conclusion we've reached is everyone in Alaska is a Kushtaka. Yes. Also, yeah. possibly here, possibly us, possibly everywhere. Uh, to kind of kind of touch base here because I, th- I think we've kind of expanded on it quite a bit. Um, but out of curiosity, because you had mentioned, or as we had talked about a little bit ago, uh, happening in the Alaskan Triangle, um, has there been anything else to kind of come out of the Alaskan Triangle that we might be familiar with, or anything else you can kind of maybe kind of briefly touch on as far as uh, as far as that? I don't know if there are any that that we'd be familiar with, but there, I mean, it is a deep well of weird. The Alaskan Triangle has so many crazy stories, disappearances, um, alien sightings. There are cryptids. There are haunts that people, you know, argue where people are like literally arguing whether it's a ghost or an interdimensional being like Mm -hmm. crazy, like high strangeness happening in this part of the world. Nice. Which is super cool. And like what I really like about it is like scientists have literally studied and found that there are like super high levels of electromagnetism within that triangle. Right? Which kind of falls into the falls into the idea of like ley lines and these like hotspot areas for weirdness. Yeah. But, you know, some more conspiratorially minded people refer to that triangle, that high electromagnetism as like a vortex. Right? Like okay. a place where, you know, like an epicenter of strangeness. Kind of so, like a rift or something yeah. kind of along those lines. Yeah. I I mean I fully plan on digging into it for for possible future episodes. There's yeah. I mean just like j- 
just like Devil's River from. I was gonna say you have a knack one, for uh, like, finding these types of hot spots. Apparently, yeah, yeah, it's it's pretty wild. It's it's wild the way these like these hot spots develop, and it's cool. I like sorting through like how much of this is it's actually a hot spot and how much of it is more things are being reported here because people began considering it a hot spot. Right. Or they're going to you look know? for it and think that they're finding what they're looking for or you right. know, basically playing it off because right. that's what they know or that's what they expect, right? Right. Like how many people go to Roswell and see aliens? You know what I mean? Like Of course. Duh. I mean you see a light <laughs> in the sky or a you know <laughs> Anything off exactly. in the distance here around the area, it, it's always an alien. It's always a UFO. Yeah. Like, you know, so it very well could be something like that. But yeah, I mean, it, it's something I think it'd be cool to continue to dig into. Just like Devil's River, I'd, I'd love to hear more about that too. Um, but I just think the ability to be able to track, uh, I guess, to find these particular types of cases where there's a lot more that kind of comes out of it, other than just the primary subject at hand. Uh, is definitely unique, which, you know, would bring a lot more to the table to be able to add to. Um, Yeah, so I was kind of curious, you know, if it was similar in that regard to Lake Devil's River, where a lot of the hauntings and ghost activity, paranormal activity, if you will, uh, that happened throughout the area. It sounds like it's very, very similar. I would say it's like Devil's River to, you know, to a tenth power. Right. It's... Because it's such a... Obviously, it's a much larger area geographically. So there's more more to draw from. But also, you just have, like, the overwhelming opportunity for disaster in wilderness like that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Of course. Like, in that just untouched wilderness, there's so many opportunities for disaster. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and so I mean, and I it could also be, be anything, too. I mean, it, literally yeah. anything just, you know, like you said, in an untouched area. And, I mean, you know, Alaska itself is known for having a lot of crazy shit. Um, yep. You know, and a lot of a lot of crazy shit, paranormal, you know, any, any even, even things that just, you know, non-day-to-day things that we would expect. Um, yeah. You know, it has it? It definitely is. You know, not necessarily a hotbed, but you know, definitely a uh, prime area for a lot of that, which makes a lot of sense that that, of course, would come out of there. Also, it takes a wild person to go to Alaska. There are a lot of like just generally wild people living in Alaska. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like super hard people, lots of <laughs> criminals. Lots of, I mean, just like, it's a different kind of person it takes to just like pull up stakes and go to a place like Alaska. I'm not going to lie, though. I really want to go to Alaska. I've actually looked into Alaskan cruises and stuff because they look so cool. (laughs) You know, off topic. But yeah, no, I want to go to Alaska really bad. Um, Yeah. Just the overall atmosphere and just nature. Uh, I think yeah. it's awesome. It'd be cool to. I mean, we've looked at everything. we've looked at cities, right? Like we've we've always had like a list of cities that yeah. would be great to go to, and Juno and Anchorage have both always been on that mm-hmm. list. So, 
Yeah. yeah, that'd be so cool. I know some of like the Alaskan cruises go to Alaska and then up to like Vancouver, BC, and then back, oh, yeah. and which is which is really cool because I mean they're obviously super close. Um, yeah, yeah, but it'd be super super awesome, and that's something I want to do one day. Um, maybe I'll get to see me with one of those those there uh, Kustakis. Yeah, hopefully not. <laughs> and apparently from the sound of it or from the yes from the sound of it I can't say from the smell of it the sound of it they smell horrible so right. uh, I don't think I can stomach that but yeah it's a, a neat uh, definitely a neat story thank you for sharing as always yeah. definitely appreciate it and appreciate kind of digging so in depth which is really good and I like being able to kind of pick it apart and you just have a lot of information to really back it up um, so just kind of yeah. remember uh, you know campers just to not uh, not go looking for the kashtaka unless you're willing to welcome it with open arms maybe <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know just make sure it knows you respect it exactly tell it you respect it you know, you appreciate it. You're there for it. You'll be okay, I think. And keep some wood over your door. <laughs> yeah, keep some wood. And don't be afraid to piss on it. Absolutely. <laughs> That'll work. Yep. All right, but I think that about wraps it up for uh, this episode. Anything else you want to kind of chime in with? No, I mean, that is the fish taco. Excellent. The fish taco, if you will. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys for uh, for listening along. That concludes episode three, the Kashtaka. Thank you, thank you, thank you. From the bottom of our weird, possibly alien, maybe ghostly, probably cryptid hearts for listening. We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week. And it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. We want to get to know each and every one of you. So please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook at campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter. And you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And a special thank you, as always, to Greg Martin at Reverent Music on Instagram um, for his song, Dying Star. That's from the EP Interstellar. It's fantastic, fantastic stuff. Go give that a listen. And that's it. Until next time, I'm Ryan. I'm Jordan. And remember, campers, stay weird and trust in the unknown. unknown.